Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Those test pilots, we would want, uh, you know, those, those sort of ab initio candidates, we would want their flying skills to be above average. We want them to be able to cope with leaping into new things. They have to have uh, enough capacity and mental agility to absorb new stuff and fly the aircraft. So they need to be above average. The flip side of that is there are some very capable, punchy, crunchy operational pilots out there that will not make the grade as test pilots. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to this latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. A while ago we spoke to Chris Taylor about his work as a civilian test pilot. Well, we had to get Chris back. We had to get him back to tell us about his time at the Empire Test Pilot School. This, of course, is all summed up in his new book out later this month, Experimental Test Pilot, Military Aircraft Research Flying. Chris, welcome back to Extended. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. It's great to have you back. We really, really enjoyed the first book. Um, and I've had the opportunity to uh, get some uh, sight of, the, uh, of this book, which is fascinating, but it's a bit different. Um, can For those who maybe don't remember our first chat, can you just put into context a bit about your career, uh, your flying time, and that, that sort of period just before you became a test pilot? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, the, the the background, as as I mentioned in the introduction to to both the books that are out there, is um, you know I wanted to be a pilot for as long as I can remember. Um, from about the age of four or five, we used to go to holiday um, in a place called Aberfrau, Anglesey, just down the road from Arian Valley. So we'd be on the beach um, watching yellow gnats that were yellow back in those days, and lightnings and whirlwinds flying overhead. My dad was Air Force. He was Air Force during the war. He was uh, he wanted to be a pilot, but actually because he was already a clerk, carried on being a clerk in the Air Force. But he was clerk to two fighter squadrons, uh, Treble Two Squadron flying Spitfires, 65 Squadron later in the war flying Mustangs. And his stories of his time um, in, in the Air Force during the war were just absolutely amazing, fascinating. And every Sunday lunchtime, we would just ask for yet another. So it, it, the background was there, that that with reading a lot of Biggles books and uh, building model aeroplanes and bolster aeroplanes. And the, it, the fascination grew, really. And um, I was mad keen to be a pilot. And I was investigating all the different ways to become a pilot back in the um, 70s. Uh, and I've actually ended up writing a third book. We might, we might, you might invite me back to that. But um, I mean, that's going to come out at the end of the year, and that's and that really recounts the the, the tale of how did I 
end up joining the Royal Navy, which is what I did. I became a fleet air on pilot. Uh, I flew the Wasp Links helicopters. Um, <laughs> up the fleet air on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's funny. I, 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 I remarked that the fleet air arm did everything it could to encourage me to join, and the RAF did everything it could to dissuade me. Right. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, um, and I did, I did dither between the two um, for some time. Uh, but the long story is, I ended up being a wasp pilot, a little Lynx pilot. Um, ironically. I became bored of just being a Navy pilot, which is a bit bizarre, isn't it? I became an instructor and a display pilot, and it was like, what's the next challenge? Um, and back in the 70s um, was the first TV documentary about being a test pilot. It was an ITV documentary. Uh, it was followed up in 1986, I think it was, by a BBC documentary. But those two TV documentaries uh, had quite a bearing on on my wanting to be a test pilot. The first one encouraged me to be a test pilot. Ironically, the second one came out in the eighties when I was already a Lynx pilot, and a lot of, I saw a lot of my sort of Navy colleagues doing the course. It looked blimmin' hard work, you know, a lot of maths, a lot of working at two o'clock in the morning. And that actually dissuaded me for a little while. Um, it rather put me off because I didn't really think I was up to it. If I'm perfectly honest, my maths wasn't great. I nearly failed my degree at university because of that. Uh, it was a struggle. And I thought, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. That's for clever people. Uh, but anyway, the circumstances changed and I decided I would, I would go for it. I would do it. Um, and this second book, it, it really, um, talks a lot more about that part of my career um, because I it talks about me wanting to be a test pilot, how I engage with the interview process, how I sort of work my socks off to prepare for that you know for that uh, in, interview event. Um, and then I spent ten years at Boscombe Down. I was I was uh, a DCPS student for a year. I then worked doing a lot of R and D experimental flying for a couple of years. I then went back to ETPS as a tutor. Uh, four more years in the Royal Navy, and then a further three years as a civilian um, working for what became Kinetic. And then, after 10 years there, I then left uh, ECPS to join the Civil Aviation Authority. So when we chatted last time, um, my book, Test Pilot, really picked up my story from when I joined the CEA. So it was really all about my testing of wacky home builds and yeah. helicopters and autogyros. It was, it was the work I did for the CEA, and the work I'd largely still do as an independent, uh, self-employed test pilot. Yeah. Um, and, but I got a lot of questions, you know, but when, I, when I'd written that book and put it out there, a lot of people said, well, why haven't you written about your time at Bosque and Dan? And um, there the are two reasons. One is there wasn't enough room in the first book. <laughs> you know, publishers have this rather quaint idea that you, you eventually have to yeah. stop writing, otherwise the book gets too heavy for people to carry home from the bookshop. So um, that was the one big reason. But but also the uh, the style of the first book, I wanted it to be relatively humorous, accessible. I wanted it to be about all the sort of wacky general aviation stuff that I've been involved in. Obviously, my my decade at Boscombe Down was a more serious time. You know that, that um, yeah. thankfully, uh, whilst I had a few scrapes and a few uh, near death experiences, they weren't the daily occurrence that that I seem to have uh, when I joined the CEA. So, <laughs> right, so okay. the tone of the two books is is subtly different. And yeah. but it, but this this second book really captures that kind of you know, really wanting to be a test pilot, what it took to become a test pilot, what it was like working at Boscombe Down, and then what it was like teaching 
others to become test pilots. So right. that's, that's that's the background. Really. So, Chris, let's go back to something you hinted at there. You said you weren't clever enough. I don't quite believe that, but I understand where you're coming from. Um, and maybe there's something in that. In um, it, it, maybe we can come back to in a, in a little while about one's ability to achieve things that you didn't expect to do. So maybe we can come back to that. But talk us through that route into um, the Empire Test Pilot School then, um, the application process and, and what you had to do to be accepted. Yeah, it was um, it, it was a difficult process. So back, back in the day um, when I was doing it, so I ended up on the course in 1994. So I was, you know, contemplating doing it from, sort of 1991 onwards um and the i think things have subtly changed now but back then really the only students the only pilot students the school took um were military very occasionally there'd be a student from industry uh but predominantly you had to be in one of the armed services so in the uk you had to be in the army navy or the air force um the navy um which I was locked into, uh, they recruited one test pilot a year. So that was that was what you were up against. And the competition for, for, in the Navy was very fierce. So lots of Navy pilots wanted to be test pilots. The, the Army and the Air Force um, had different challenges and sometimes they struggled to get uh, good students, ironically. But, um, but for the Navy, it, it was you know it was real quite a, quite a competitive field and um the the interview process was for me uh very demanding so back then we used to have two two written papers two exams uh one was on maths on mathematics engineering mathematics um and uh, i literally spent two years working up to the the interview process going through there used to be a book by a chap called stroud which everybody recommended it was kind of you know a sort of engineering maths for dummies almost it was how to do all of the stuff that i fell asleep during the, the lectures for university i mean i really struggled at university with it um and i just had to teach myself engineering maths for this exam and there was another exam on how airplanes fly and how helicopters fly so that you know there was an academic element um and then you were interviewed by all the various tutors um, to see what your knowledge was. And you, and you really were expected to be, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, you had to be an expert on your own aircraft, on your own role, you know, what it was that you were you're there to do. You had to know an awful lot about other um, aircraft in your service. So in my case, other Navy helicopters and airplanes. Right, okay. And then you had to have a really broad aviation knowledge, you know, so you'd be asked about the space shuttle or the you know, what was going on. I mean, these days, no doubt the questions about UAVs and drones and yeah. what's going on in Ukraine and so on. So, you know, the interview process went over two, two days and and you ended up in front of the this was the main panel, which was all the group captains, commodores, air commodores, you know, all the senior scientists. Um, and yeah, they, they spent an hour grilling you on why you wanted to be a test pilot. And again, what did you know? You know, what you were going to bring to the table, what you could add right. to the the organization so it was a very demanding uh, right okay how, do, how going going back to that time chris um coming back to i suppose what people call that imposter syndrome you know i'm not clever enough da, 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 da. how did you how did you feel how did you feel when you were going through that process was it a stressful process did you feel confident um how what was their sort of style were they there to trip you up you know some processes are just there 
to be bloody minded. What, what sort of a process was it? Was it inclusive? Did you feel like it was taking you on a journey or was it rapid fire to see how your brain worked, you know, and were you able to store large amounts of data? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, uh, obviously, I went on to be a tutor at the school and and, and went on to be part of those. Panels, to be one, yeah. <laughs> to be one of those nasty people asking the difficult questions. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was interesting. But I can tell you that when I went through as a student, um, I didn't I didn't feel confident I think I make the comment in the in the book um I I always do my best to play the cards I'm dealt that seems to be how I'm wired and I I don't do anything by halves if I'm honest you know if if I you know I think it's true of all you know musicians athletes anybody that sets their sort of target on some kind of goal then um you've really got to go out you know, all out for it. And, yeah. and that's what I did. So, so I, um, my domestic circumstances were very challenging. And I, again, I mentioned it in the book because um, I, at just at the time when I was uh, wanting to do something new in my aviation career and I was dithering about joining the Air Force, um, my wife was taken very seriously ill with a brain tumour. Um, that left me as a single parent effectively for, for quite a period. Um, and I was struggling to sort of spin plates, juggle balls, you know, look after the house, look after my wife, look after my son and so on. Uh, but also, I didn't want to go to the interviews, not on top of it you know i really wanted to be yeah. on top of my own personal game um so i committed myself uh, one of the requirements was to be an expert in your own aircraft so i was already an instructor but i decided i would go for the top grade of instructor known as an a1 which was a huge amount of work um and and again i got a two, two or three day grilling by experts and i went flying with them you know to to make sure that i was uh, on the top of my game um they they decided i was only just exceptional <laughs> which yeah which, they're never going to say just, you good, you know, at they? the time it was quite a, a bit a bit galling when, when i look back on it i think yeah well just exceptional i, yeah. I you know i can pretty yeah. much live with that i mean i was i was happy with above average you know that would have done yeah, me sure but, uh, sure so um so i put a lot of effort into it um again i talk about in the in the book i managed to uh, um well, wangle my way on a trip to America. My, I had uh, uh, a friend of my wife's was living in uh, Texas, and we engineered to go out there and see them. Uh, and I convinced the, my Navy boss that I could tag a few days onto my leave and do some visits to certain places, uh, really yeah. researching simulators. But um, my hidden agenda, well, not so hidden, it was really to gain more aviation knowledge for these interviews. Yeah. So I went to visit Bell Helicopters, learned all about the Osprey tilt rotor. I um, went to NASA, learned all about the space shuttle. And uh, so, at, yeah. when I went to the interviews, you know, I I'd, I'd been around, I'd talked to people, I'd been to Westland helicopters, I'd got all the yeah. lowdown on being a test pilot. So, I was as prepared as anyone could be, which which helped my confidence. But yeah, I still sure. went in there, as you said, feeling a fraud. Uh, thinking, <laughs> I didn't you know, mean it that way, but no, no. I, I, I and actually, uh, you know, I still am a fraud. I, I'm, I'm blagging <laughs> every day of the week. I don't week. think so. You know, it's, uh, I don't think one of these so. days, I'll know what I'm doing, but I haven't quite made it yet. You know? <laughs> so tell us about those. Um, it's a twelve month course. The course is yes. a twelve month course. Tell us about that those 12 months what happens first how do you get engaged in experimental flying they don't just walk you out to a box with wings on and say 
fill your boots? How, how do you sort of get into the process of being an experimental test pilot? Yeah, again, good question. I mean, the, the, the ECPS course now, as we speak, is subtly different from the one I did back in 1994. But, but you know, anybody that's gone through test pilot school will recognise the course now as it was in 1943. The course in 1943 uh, it was basically the um, underpinning of everything that, that's followed and, and gone in its wake. Uh, now they they actually dragged the course out slightly over a year, which I think is challenging because a lot of people coming from overseas uh, and just the domestics of it, you know, we we were moving into a rather crappy house uh, up near Boscombe Down uh, before Christmas in the pouring rain. You know, we had young children, you know, lots of domestic challenges. Yeah. My wife still yeah. was firing on four cylinders by then. Um, I, yeah, how, how does one train to be a test pilot? There are probably... Um, I suppose two completely distinct disciplines, really, if we're honest. One is the learning the practical tools of the trade. It's like like picking up the spanner set, you know, and it's so there are a whole bunch of different tests you fly uh, and, and perform on helicopters and airplanes that allow a test pilot to gather information, to write a report, to document if the aircraft's safe to fly, basically. So there's a, there's a tool set um, that you acquire. But it's gaining the philosophy of being a test pilot is it's uh, hard to document and write down how that's achieved. Um, and I know I, I was involved as a tutor at ETPS at looking at that. How do we, you know, how do we maybe make the course shorter? How do we save money? How do we streamline it? Uh, but but we kept coming back to this challenge of how do you if you if you make the course too short or too minimalist, how do you engender that sense of um, that philosophy of someone that's able to test something but be very critical of it to absorb information almost by osmosis that the the environment they're in they they're absorbing you know this is difficult but why is it difficult you know this aircraft is difficult to fly why why am I finding it difficult to fly you know which is so different to the um the 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 pilot I'd been in the Navy, um, you know, I, I was a WASP pilot. I, I, I learned as a test pilot the WASP was bloody difficult to fly. It was a really, really difficult helicopter to fly. And looking back on it, no wonder I found it difficult. But when I was sort of 20-something uh, being shouted at by my seniors, I just worked harder. You know, you just got on and, and did the job uh, and flew what was in front of you. But as a test pilot, you've got to say, <clears throat> you know, it's difficult. Uh, I've got to fly it so I don't kill myself. I've got to fly it safely. But what is it? What What's going on with this? You know, what's going on with this cockpit, this particular uh, flying aspect that makes it difficult for me? And then not just working that out, but then how can I write that down and document it? How can I gather the evidence? Um, I, I say to people, we're a bit like lawyers. You know, we stand in a court of law effectively and, and convince somebody that this is an innocent or guilty party, you know, depending on the evidence we've gathered. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 challenging, um, but the, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, uh, and you know, I, I am denied how much to put in my book about the course, but I, I've, I've written three chapters on it basically because it's split into three terms. Typically, uh, you know, the first term, a big chunk of it is just learning the, to fly the different aircraft you're going to fly. Um, second term is probably the, the the core where you do all the again the tools of the trade stuff you learn all all of the the test techniques and then the third term broadly speaking 
is when you really broaden your experience. You you fly different aircraft types. You go abroad. You you fly different things uh, overseas. And you ultimately end up flying a project like a sort of end of university MSc project. But it's you fly something, you fly it for a number of hours. Back in my day, it was about 10 hours. And then you write a whacking great report on it um, to tell everybody what you thought of it. Yeah. And that, that sort of is the sort of you know, the, the, the end point of your 12 months. Um, but um, Chris, tell me one thing. And it, I, I, was in, I was really intrigued, actually, about this um, because um, in our first chat and in the first book, um, you talk about multiple aircraft types, but we sort of focused predominantly on rotary well, uh, wing aircraft. Um, well, some funny stories amongst others. Um, but um, the fascinating thing I found about this was the aircraft types you flew. And, you know, we're all relatively familiar with the um, with the portfolio of aircraft there. But how was that transition from a rotary to a fast jet to a prop liner or a jet liner type philosophy. They're, they're massive steps in the architecture of the aircraft and presumably the types of line and therefore your tomes of stuff that you were required to write. How did you find that transition? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, that was a core aspect of becoming a test pilot is that ability to, um, it's, it's like the rental car thing. I, I describe it as a rental car. You know, back in the day before cars were driven by computers, um, broadly speaking, as an experienced driver, you could rent something from Avis or Hertz. And, you know, within a couple of minutes of working out where the winkers were, you could drive it. You know, you didn't need a six-month course to move from a Vauxhall to a Ford to whatever. Um, and, that, and, and so the first few weeks of the test pilot course, it, it is mind-blowing. There's no doubt about it. You go from – I mean, it took me – um, six months to learn to fly the Bulldog, six months to learn to fly the Gazelle, six months to learn to fly the Wasp, six months to learn to fly the, the, the Lynx. You know, the, the military teach you uh, how to fly one type well. You know, you have four or five weeks of ground school. Yeah. You, you, you fly with instructors. You, you know, it, it's, it's months and months and months. I turn up at Boscombe Down. Within a couple of weeks, uh, they say, well, you've already flown the Gazelle before. We normally give you two hours fly it you know i get 45 <laughs> minutes and they send me off on my own in an aircraft type i haven't flown in in years yeah but I, I get into the scout they say oh it's almost the same as the wasp you flew the wasp 45 minutes later i'm on my own flying around in the scout <laughs> same with the lynx when it gets to the sea king i'd not flown a sea king before i got all of two hours training on a sea king and i say in my book wow. i was flying wow. i'd learned how to fly the sea king uh, i'd had one session in the simulator i'd had two trips with two different instructors and i set off with a dutch pilot who was an alouette uh, three pilot so he didn't know an awful lot about <laughs> helicopters at all and um we were doing all right for the first 45 minutes and it started to rain and it started to really pour down with rain heavy rain and uh that's no drama the thing's got seat yeah, it's got it's got wipers. Um, that's not going to be a big deal. I couldn't find the switch. <laughs> couldn't find the switch. You know, I mean, I mean, appalling. If you if you say this to seeking pilots who spent six months learning how to fly the seeking, you know, somebody yeah. told them where the wiper switch was early on in their course. <laughs> Nobody told me where it was, and and I couldn't find it. I landed on, and I, I had to uh, sort of taxi uh, in, not being able to say out the window, and had to ask an engineer where the wiper switch was. <laughs> it wasn't where I expected. So. No. 
quite challenging, but it was a brilliant learning curve, you know, just be thrown at things yeah. um, and then told to get on with it, really. Fantastic. Did you know that in the late 1940s, during atomic weapons testing in the Pacific, the USA used Boeing B-17 flying fortresses as unmanned radio-controlled drones? Did you also know that in 1927, two RAF officers in a Hawker Horsley set a new distance record, flying from Britain to the Persian Gulf, only for it to be eclipsed just hours later by Charles Lindbergh's solo Atlantic crossing, which was a mere 180 miles longer? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. So, uh, I mean, hairy moments, windscreen wipers aside, um, what other hairy moments um, did you have? Because we've talked about... In the in in the first book, we talked about the auto dryers and how they could kill you very very quickly yeah. if you weren't yeah. proficient in 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 handling them. Um, what was it like on these multiple airframe types? Yeah, well, trying again, to kill you. It, it, it was, <laughs> the, the challenges were there, and uh, I mean, I think um, obviously at Boscombe Down we were uh, everything was done. Uh, not that not that my time at the CAA was not professional, but but you know in the CAA I'm a one man band. I'm leaping into something, you know something new every day, flying from somewhere different every day. Uh, at Boscombe Down, uh, I did a lot of experimental flying R and D stuff, um, and and the biggest challenge there was trying to make sure that the boffins and the scientists we were working with understood the limitations of the aircraft platform we were flying. So I, I, I talk about one example where it was almost my first job. I'm in a seeking, and the guys say, right, you know, you do this, do that, and then you get overhead the target, um, and we want you to come down vertically at a 1,000 feet a minute in a seeking. And you go, well, that'll kill us all, because you're getting to something called vortex ring, yeah. which is the helicopter equivalent of stalling, and you won't get out of it, and we'll crash. Went, oh, we didn't think we didn't think that would be a problem. <laughs> I said, well, what, why do we have to come down? We said, well, we just need a vertical rate. I said, well, could we go up? Well, isn't that harder going up in a helicopter? You know, well, not if we're light enough, and not you yeah. know, not if we plan it accordingly. Uh, and so that was that was quite a you know a fun aspect to the job is to try and take what was um, being asked of us and then and then make it as safe as we could. And that's a, again a core discipline of a test pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you, you'll read that in, in the two years at Experimental Flying Squadron. I had my fair, fair share of incidents, um, you know, just, I mean, sometimes just because of a lack of familiarity, um, sometimes because we were trying to do, it was a sort of pseudo commercial environment. We had yeah. you know, work and jobs to do. We had to crack on even if the weather wasn't ideal. So some of the issues were like all aviation stories, you know, being caught out by the weather that wasn't as expected or forecast, uh, you know, trying to, and, and, and a lot of the aircraft we flew, uh, I mean, my, the Sea King, my Sea King that I flew was a was an original Sikorsky SH-3D uh, aircraft. Um, it hadn't kept pace with all the anti-icing stuff that Sea Kings had. So it had a very 
what did I learn? Unknown icing. <laughs> Basically, we didn't we didn't know what would happen if I actually flew it into icing conditions. Right. We just knew that it probably wasn't going to be good. So, you know, in the winter, we were always flying around, you know, below the cloud, being forced down by weather. Um, yeah. Just very challenging to just to get get the job done. Yeah. Um, late, later on, when I joined ETPS, I, I say it was a um, I, I can't remember that quote from. Uh, Top Gun now, it's sort of, you know, when he, when he goes to Top Gun school and he beats the place up and he gets shouted at and, you know, you had a hell of a first day, Maverick. Yeah, well, yeah. my first year at ETPS as a tutor um, was a hell of a year. I had, um, uh, so I, I learned how to fly the Bassett airplane, a twin engine airplane. Uh, we went off, uh, I went off with the instructor. The aircraft has only one set of controls. So the instructor was sat next to me, but couldn't do anything. Yeah, uh, He wanted me to see what he was like on one engine so we shut an engine down um the bassett it was one of those beautiful old english airplanes that actually can't fly on one engine you know it can, <laughs> one engine takes you to the scene of the crash so uh, having having shut down Love one it. engine and we're starting to sort of drift down gently uh i'm then trying to start the, the the engine back up again and it wouldn't start and there i am on my very first conversion to a new type, you know, with the only set of controls in front of me, trying to deal with an emergency that we weren't expecting on a serviceable aeroplane. Um, so I talk about that in the book. Um, later on, because I'd learned how to fly the Bassett, I, I, I uh, was keen to fly the variable stability Hawk that we had. Um, and by then I'd flown the Hawk a little bit, but not 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 much. And um, I said to the guy who who ran that project, I said, you know, next time you've got a spare seat, can I come with you and see what that's like? Anyway, weeks went by and he, he gave me a ring and said, I'm, this afternoon I've got to go and fly um, the Hawk. It's It's got an engine change. So we'll go and do a check test flight. won't take very long. And um, and then we'll we'll look at all the variable stability stuff and we'll talk about that. So we spent a lot of time talking about that, not much time talking about the air test. It turns out that my my G trousers and my G suit had been uh, taken away for modification. So anyway, long story short, I, I, we hadn't had much time to chat about the air test. I leap into the front of this Hawk. We blat off. Uh, we're west of Boscombe Down, somewhere over Chivener, 44,000 feet, doing slam checks to make sure the engine works. And it didn't. <laughs> basically there's a lot of loud banging <laughs> and uh i thought oh, that's odd you know and this was before my time in the CEA when i'd done a lot of this testing myself yeah, i was yeah. a bit of a novice at that point and uh, the next thing i hear is the bloke in the other seat going mayday mayday, mayday. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> that's, that's not what i expected on a nice friday afternoon in, in the middle of july or whatever it was um so that that was interesting uh, and um yeah, we, we basically, he uh, was, you know, I couldn't do anything to help him. Again, a bit like the Bassett, my controls were not uh, wired up to the airplane. They, they could only fly through the computer. So I was pretty much just a sort of back yeah. in a sack of potatoes. And uh, he got onto distress and diversion on guard. Um, we were over Chivener, just west of, you know, Barnstable up, up on that west coast. Um, but they they said, oh, go, go to St. Morgan, go to, uh, you know, what's now Cornwall airport or whatever it's called uh, in Newquay and uh, all I could think about was the Friday afternoon traffic in July yeah, you know, getting home gridlocked <laughs> roads you know yeah, yeah. You, that's a, you got, you got to be from the UK to know that one but well, yeah well, I, I mean in, in, in that book that you've read Test Pilot I, I, yeah. I learned the lesson from that incident that you know when any, anything starts to go pear-shaped 
point to where you've parked your car. The first thing you do <laughs> is point to where you parked your car because this bloke didn't. He, 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 yeah. didn't. He, 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 he sort of set off, you know, talking to these other people. We were heading west the whole time, the wrong way. And by the time they gave us vectors to the nearest airfield, it was the wrong one. You know, if we'd, if we'd yeah, pointed absolutely. towards home, we yeah. might have been uh, able to make it home. So, so yeah, that was a that was um, that was the uh, the second big incident in my first year, and then and then somewhere along the way, I managed to crash a perfectly serviceable scout helicopter, which is entirely my own fault. Um, I was caught out by the windy conditions, a bit like the wind today that we've yeah. got blowing outside my my house. But it was a very windy day. I'd not flown the scout on such a windy day. I was practicing engine off landings at an airfield I didn't know very well. And I messed it up. I, I, I crashed it. I mean, I, I yeah. it was a heavy landing, actually, rather than a crash. I mean, I, I walked <laughs> away from it, and the helicopter was rebuilt, and it's now flying. It's um, owned by a private owner in New Zealand, actually. So, wow. Wow. But again, wow. I tell the story about that because it, it was another you know, series of lessons learned, and I yeah. had to sort of, um, yeah. <clears throat> deal with the consequences of that. And um, before I come to some questions, I've got some questions for you from um, from my co-hosts. But I just wanted to um, – I had a few. Uh, first was what was the transition like from um, being a student to a, to an instructor? How did, how did that work for you? What, you know, that must yeah. have been quite challenging, actually, having survived the course. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, well, I, what I, 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 you know, again, I comment that, um, but you know, by I, I mean, I graduated top of my class uh, when, when I left ETPS. So, you know, somebody thought I'd learned something, um, and I'd had two years of test flying, and then I went back to the school as a tutor, and. I knew naff all, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> I, knew, I knew the square root of next to nothing. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm in the school and I'm suddenly faced with, you know, teaching a topic um, to a whole bunch of students. And, of course, the students that I seem to get all seem to be a lot sharper than me. You know, they seem to be younger, better looking and, uh, and cleverer, you know. And I was going, I was, how can I stand in front of these people and convince them of this topic that, yeah. that suddenly I don't think I know anything about? And um, – the first year at, at ETBS as a tutor was equally as hard as my year as a student. There's absolutely no doubt because I had to effectively relearn all the topics that I'd learned as a student, but but actually really understand them this time. You know, yeah. it's, that, it's that motive. If you want to be sure you understand something, teach it, you know, because then you, you know, you're not just having to spout the, the stuff. You're having to answer difficult questions and, and really get to grips with how to put it across in an understandable fashion. So yeah. uh, I was literally about a week ahead of my students for 12 months. Wow. So about about a week. Sometimes a fortnight, sometimes a couple <laughs> of days. <laughs> but that was the first year, yeah. Right, Very okay. Different. Well, let me go to some questions um, from some of my co-hosts. Um this one is, uh, where does the Empire Test Pilot School get new and unusual types for its students to test? Uh, yep, good question. So, obviously, they have a variety of aircraft on their core fleet anyway. So, they have you know, a number of aeroplanes, a number of helicopters. So, they have some variety um, within, within the school fleet that they own or operate. Um, after that, um, they will will rent in UK-based airplanes and helicopters. Um, so basically, they will go to companies that own something and say, you know, bring it to us and effectively do a, 
instructional sorties with students to give them a chance to fly something different. Um, ETPS is very good at liaising with the other military test pilot schools around the world, so Epner in France and the two American schools. Um, and quite often they, they will visit those schools so, again, students can fly the, you know, the other aircraft on the test pilot school um, fleet. So so I went to uh, Patuxent River, the US Navy test pilot school, a couple of times during my time. Had some amazing flying there. I mean, flying a, a jet ranger on floats, you know, landing in Chesapeake Bay with the engine turned off, splashing water everywhere. I mean, you know, yeah. a real hoot, a, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so, so the, the, you know, they're they, they predominantly the way they do it. They, they go out to the other schools or the other military organizations that they, they have contact with, or they will just pay money and rent something in. And there's a budget the school has yeah. to do that. So that right, they can okay. broaden people's knowledge, basically, experience. <laughs> Um, and um, for something like that, how does the student prepare for an aircraft that's not in type, as it were, for, um, you know, that's not in the normal syllabus? Is it in the same way? Yes, generally. So depending on the, the exercise or the scenario, um, where uh, you you knew in advance um, what you were going to be flying, you would get hold of the flight manual, the POH, the the, the aircraft flight manual, um, pilot's notes, whatever you want to call it, um, and and study them and read them and make sure you knew as much about the aircraft as you can do, could do. Uh, I always, even now, even today, when I'm getting into something new, um, I will read the pilot's notes the night before at, at at the minimum, and I'll make a kneeboard up. So I'll put on my little kneeboard all the need-to-know stuff that will, will actually get me through the day or the hour of flying safely. So all the, the critical emergency drills, all the limitations, and, and so on, and any particular uh, aspects of the aircraft that are quirky or unusual. And, and that's part of the discipline. You learn how to really sort of sift the wheat from the chaff the, the need to know stuff from the nice to know stuff you know what what is it that's basically going to kill me if i if i go and fly this thing and i don't understand that system or that computer or that instrument you know that could kill me i need to get my head around that yeah but the rest of it is the rental car philosophy the, you know you're getting into something that drives a bit like another car um, yeah. Okay. So you okay. set that side aside. You don't need to work too hard about that. You know, it's got controls a bit like every other helicopter or airplane, and they work a bit like every other helicopter or airplane. So, um, you know, that you can you can sort of expect that to be reasonably simple <laughs> inverted commas, but yeah. you know, it's all yes. relative. Yes. But then you con- concentrate on on you know working out the, the major differences that are going to get you. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was from Tim. He's got one other Kuwait. Uh, he's got. It's quite a long one, but I'll try and uh, pull this one together. Did the Empire Test Pilot School cover drones, UAVs in your your time there? And what is your thoughts on testing UAVs uh, remotely and also testing the new um, fleet on the block, and that's electric and hybrid aircraft types? Uh, yep. Yeah. Okay, so... Um... The, the, the short answer is when back in 1994, no, we did not test drones and we weren't that involved with um, 
testing of drones. And if, and, and if you, you know, if you can remember that far back, <laughs> you know, we didn't really have drones back then. Yeah, no, um, no. I mean, the nearest we had to drones and stuff like that were remotely piloted um, targets. So, I mean, I did get involved, um, you know, Lambeda and these rangers. We would have targets that were remotely piloted so that, you know, uh, airplanes and, and things with weapon systems could shoot at them. So, that you know, the technology was there, but it was very... Um, rudimentary and simplistic compared to what's around now. Um, Do I, I actually genuinely do not know if in the last few years, ETPS has added that into its generic test pilot course. I mean, the problem is with all of these um, uh, uh, things is what do you take out of the test pilot course to fit in new stuff? It's been always yeah. been a challenge. Yeah. And, and ideally, you don't want the course to be much longer than a year because of the, the practicalities of it. Um, when it comes to these electric uh, aeroplanes, I'm involved in them. Uh, I, I'm still doing some work for the CAA, and therefore we regulate anything being built in the UK. Uh, there's a company at Bristol building a – uh, a battery-powered aircraft. I did some work for a company out in Germany called Lilium. They're building, a, a, a again, a battery-powered electric taxi. Um, yeah. All of these aircraft are challenging the regulators because the you know the FAA, EASA, UK, CAA, somebody eventually will have to say that these are safe um, and that they are you know safe to fly, easy to fly for us as passengers to get into them. Um, and the rules are not yet written. So the rules are being written in parallel with the companies building the aircraft. Um, yeah. So there's quite a lot of uh, quite interesting discussion going on. Um, and unfortunately for me, when a lot of the work I did um, in, in the 90s when I worked for Experimental Flying Squadron was working on a, um, a system of testing helicopters that was non-traditional. It was it was aimed at testing things like the Comanche, these fly-by-wire, yeah. fly-by-light helicopters driven by computers. And all of these modern electric aeroplanes uh, are, are driven by computers. You know, the controls that the pilot will move – a bit like the Bassett and the Hawk, they won't actually be connected to flying controls. They'll be connected yeah. to computers that make the thing fly. So okay. um, so I'm reasonably on top of that discipline. But UAVs, apart from flying my own model aeroplane and my model drone <laughs> in the park at weekends, <laughs> I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. Okay. Um, and then Gareth uh, asks, what qualities make a frontline squadron pilot most suitable to be a test pilot? Is the job of a test pilot much different now than it was in aviation's more formative years? So two parts, really. Yeah. So the answer is no. A test pilot, um, a test pilot in 1943 would recognise me as a test pilot in 2023, you know, 80 years later. Um, The disciplines, the philosophies, the core skills are the same. They haven't really changed in 80 years. Um, so yeah, so, so that's it. Now, now the frontline pilot becoming a test pilot. Uh, so the, the the military test pilot, um, the ethos is that they are drawn from, they're recruited from um, the frontline roles um, that that are out there. So you know, we we want in the military a fast jet test pilot to have had an operational fast jet background. So, you know, if you're going to test the, 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 the Typhoon replacement or the F-35 replacement, we, you know, we test pilots uh, would be looking for people that had operational experience of flying those aircraft. So they could relate to the job. They could relate to the role. 
Um, those test pilots, we would want, uh, you know, those, those sort of ab initio candidates, we would want their flying skills to be above average. We want them to be able to cope with leaping into new things, which I've just talked about. They, so they, they have to have uh, enough capacity and mental agility to absorb new stuff and fly the aircraft. So they need to be above average. But the flip side of that is there are some very capable punchy, crunchy operational pilots out there that will not make the grade as test pilots. Uh, it's not because they can't fly aeroplanes. It's that they cannot sometimes get their head around the philosophy of uh, you know, stopping this mentality of I've got to work harder and fly my jet as fast as I possibly can and to the best of my ability. I've now got to completely change my philosophy and go, I'm going to try and fly this aircraft, but I'm going to try and work out why it is difficult for me. And and I, I've said to many people over the years, there are some pilots out there that I, I call them the golden hands guys, you know, that they find flying so easy and uh, they don't necessarily spot problems easily. You know, they get into something and they fly it. You know, and I get into something because I you know, I don't find flying easy. I work hard at it. Um, I always have had to. Um, and I get in there and I go, wow, you know, that that aspect of this particular flight has been difficult. Why? You know, and now I can use my experience and training to, to document what it is. Um, and that that's the core skill. So not every frontline pilot can switch, you know, make that mental switch to uh, the discipline of being a test pilot. Um, but, yeah. you know, but both are true. Test pilots are drawn from military test pilots need to have come from, you know, above average experienced operational pilots. Okay. Okay. And then one finally from um, from me, Chris, looking back as a pilot and an and instructor, what were your greatest lessons from your decade or so at the Empire Test Pilot School? Uh, yeah, lessons learnt. I mean, well, the first, the first one is obviously always point to where you park your car. <laughs> <laughs> and if you if you read my book, Test Pilot, uh, I, I know you've read it, but if anybody listening yeah. reads it, you you will realise I I used that philosophy and that lesson learnt time and time and time again, and it saved my bacon uh, repeatedly. If I'm honest. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the I think the things that I picked up at Boscombe Down and that whole philosophy, uh, and it, much to the annoyance of my wife, I have to say, is a, is a, a sort of overarching criticality and pessimism. So, uh, you, you know, shit happens, shit happens to me, and it's going to happen today. And it's going to happen today at the most embarrassing time. You know, that's, that's the philosophy of test pilot. And whilst you become pessimistic like that, you also become critical of everything around you because your job is to, you know, fly something and work out what's wrong with it. That even the best aeroplane on the planet will not be perfect. There's always something you could find to make it better. So the, the danger is when you come home in the evening or the weekend or whenever it is you finally get home, you, you're then critical of everything in the house. You know, why is my, you know, TV yeah. system not working? Yeah. Why can't I find that Netflix program that I want? Why, why are the switches wired the wrong way on my microwave? You know, why, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get very critical. And if you're not careful, yeah. you, you become one of these people who just whinges all the time, you know, about yeah. uh, that's not as good as it could be. Um, I mean, that is the training and philosophy of a test pilot. Unfortunately, you know, ETPS hammers it into you. And once it's ingrained in your DNA, you really can't get rid of it. 
Um, yeah. So I suppose fundamentally, that's the, that's the big lesson you get is is you you just don't take anything at face value. You know, you you just are always looking for it to be made better or how you can fix it or how you know why it is that something doesn't seem sensible to you. Yeah, and some advice for anyone thinking of. Um looking to to go into that challenge of 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 the course at etps um what advice would you give to them i i would say absolutely do it you know if you can um aspire to to becoming a test pilot or a flight test engineer or getting involved in flight test uh, at, at any level there is no greater aviation challenge and reward you know it is absolutely the you know the front line the cutting edge the bees knees whatever you want to call it you know whether you end up um you know working for a small organization and, and you're just bolting on you know small items into a cockpit or whether you end up working for airbus building the next day 380 it, it really doesn't matter you know the challenges are are, are the same um uh, it, it's it's the most Amount of fun you can have with your trousers on is one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it is it is incredibly hard work, incredibly challenging, incredibly demanding. But the you know the, the professional rewards are, are, are great. And yeah. and actually now, um, you know, whilst we start chatting about you know back in 1994, the only way to be a test pilot in the UK was to be in the military first. You know, you needed to have got into one of the armed services, really, um, and then be selected through the process to get to ETPS. Um, these days, there are much more op- opportunities and options. So a lot of short courses out there. There are other test pilot schools out there now, um, other than ETPS, that, that guess what, do a very similar thing based on the sort of core disciplines we've been talking about. Um, and, you know, again, if you've got money uh, and you therefore, you know, if you've gone to a company that's got money to spend on you, then it may well be that you don't have to be in the military to get some flight test training in order to be able to get into the flight test world. Right. Um, but, it, but it, yeah, it's, it's, I've had a an unusual but, uh, you know, exciting, interesting, challenging, uh, fun career. Uh, and I would and recommend it to anyone. It, it seems to me, Chris, that um, the few test pilots that, that we've spoken to um, – uh, and again, take this in spirit, are all real characters, uh, very different from your um, traditional uh, flying careers, I think. Were there any really unusual characters that you came across in your, your test flying time? Uh, well, tell us about, but not name. (laughs) We're all, um, well, if you look, if you read my books, you'll, you'll find there aren't many names in the books. (laughs) Hence the question. My my thinking was that, you know, that those of us in the know will know and those of us not in the know don't need to know. And and I'll try to avoid (laughs) embarrassing too many people. Um, But I mean, what are the, the challenges of being a test pilot is, to some extent, you're encouraged to think on your feet, to think as an individual, to form a view, to form an opinion, and then to represent your views coherently, expertly, you know, succinctly and well. So you, if you're not careful, you find that um, – you know, when you are working with other test pilots, they will also be representing their views very coherently and, and well. <laughs> and if they have a subtly different view, which yeah. is often the case, then you can end up with some quite interesting, you know, heated discussions. Um, and that's 
that's healthy in a way. That's a good thing. Uh, and over the years, I've, I've had to lock horns with a number of colleagues um, when we've been on different sides of the table for one reason or another. Um, you know, it, I mean, quite often I've represented the regulator, the CEA, ESA, and I've gone to companies or to individuals and said, <clears throat> you know, for one reason or another, I'm, I'm being critical of your aeroplane, your helicopter. And they obviously representing the company that have designed this wonderful gizmo, um, yeah. uh, want to sell it to me and say, no, no, it's absolutely fine. And we've had to, you know, we've had to have quite difficult discussions sometimes. Um, which is, which is one of the challenges of being a test pilot. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm doing a talk, um, in, in a couple of weeks time at Waterstones with another test pilot, um, He's a fast jet guy. He's uh, he's a few years older than me, so he was he's uh, doing his stuff in the seventies and eighties. Um, and we did this twelve months ago when my first book came out, and, and we complement each other very well. I mean, and uh, but I do call it, you know, if you if you want, uh, you know, three opinions, you only need two test pilots. That's, <laughs> that's a standing joke, but it is very true, and yeah. you'll get those opinions very forcibly expressed. So, yeah, uh, yeah definitely. Well, it's a, a, a really fascinating and insightful read. Bit different from your first book. Really, really enjoyed it. It's due out later this month. For those listening, that's April 23. You can pre-order it now. But Chris, where can we find you online, social media links and so forth? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, I try and put posts on Facebook every now and again, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I do tweets and Twitter. Um so you could find me on there. I, 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 you know, I'm not the best at doing all of these things, but obviously, as soon as you put this podcast out, I'll, I'll try and yep. put it on all my social media sites. Uh, I've got my okay. own website because I'm a self-employed test pilot, so I'm always looking for business. So, uh, dovetailaviation.co.uk will yep. find me, and I put links on that website to my books and to my uh, bits and pieces as well. Okay. So, if you can't find me any other way. Um, but these these days, if you Google Chris Taylor test pilot, then um, we'll find you. My book turn up and things like that. So it's it's very it's, good. It's getting better. <laughs> very good. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. Um, we'd like to thank White Hearts as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including Mick Oakey at the Aviation Historian and Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiasts Book Club. I also wanted to thank those who've reviewed the program recently, and in particular Honza. H, who listen to us along with a large number of others on the CastBox app. There are so many podcast playing apps out there. Um, the program feeds into so many of them. We don't always get to see the feedback. So please don't be shy. Email us at aviationextended.co.uk. Message us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. I'd also like to send our thanks to Paul McCannon, who made us a, a, a large donation to support the programme. So thank you very much, Paul. We'd also like to thank Jan Horak, who set up an auto payment contribution. Thank you, Jan. Uh, both of these will go towards our web hosting costs and all of our other social media and podcast uh, loading uh, costs. If we, if you'd like to make a donation, look up our donation details on the webpage at aviation-extended.co.uk. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Tim Gareth and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. That's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Chris Taylor. Goodbye. Thanks ever so much. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency 
That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program And leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.